from B Media Production. This is Business Essentials, practical advice and ideas to grow your business. Welcome to this episode of Business Essentials Podcast. I'm Peter Letts. With all the talk about trade wars between the US and China, you'd think that business people would be a little circumspect about the China market at the moment. But that doesn't seem to be the case if you listen to one company on the ground over there. Based in Shanghai and specialising in food and beverages, the Silk Initiative couldn't be busier. And CEO Andrew Kula says that's true for so many other international companies operating there. The Silk Initiative assists companies looking to expand into China, providing tailored strategic approaches that will bring long-term results. And Andrew knows all too well the do's and watch-outs. First, trade wars, politics and regulation. Are they taking their toll on international companies working in China? That question from Heather Dawson. I haven't seen it have a direct impact, to be honest, on the day-to-day operation of our companies. Perhaps boards are a bit more cautious. I do get a few more phone calls saying, like, should we, shouldn't we? At the operational level, it tends to still be business as usual. I hear just a lot more hype about it here, to be honest. You know, when I come back here and when I look at my, you know, my news feeds that are coming up from Australia, there's at least two articles about China, one place at the beginning of the feed, one at the end. When you're there, it's full steam ahead. Right. I think at a grassroots level, when you're in it every day and there are uh, legislative changes coming through, we get regular updates from, from lawyers and accountants. And you can see by way of that, actually, that they are trying to make it an easier place to do business. Even the trade between Australia in the last four years since a free trade agreement took place, there have been many other infrastructural changes that have taken place to facilitate that. Okay. Mm. Now, your business focuses on food and beverage. Mm-hmm. Um, how big are the opportunities in that sector for expansion in China? They're just massive. I, I would hope to see that it sees out the rest of my career, the rest of my, like, my sort of <laughs> uh, career time in China. It is huge. It continues to expand. We've kind of gone from this commodity trading trade between Australia and China now to real value adds. And there are so many more value add food and beverage products we have here, particularly in the lifestyle health and wellness spaces that Chinese consumers are looking to access. And that's just Australia. You've got sort of the same discussions happening, obviously, still with US brands, UK, European brands. Chinese consumers still are in love with foreign brands. They realise they are just at the start of their journey. Global travel obviously facilitates that in a big way. Every year we just see huge leaps in the numbers of outbound tourists and they come back with new experiences and expectations to see those products and perhaps those services on shelf. And your business, uh, the Silk Initiative, you help facilitate brands into China. Then, So what do you do? How do you operate? The whole idea for us is that it's data in, concept out, essentially. So our whole shtick is that we all come from research backgrounds or planning backgrounds. So we produce a lot of data custom research data as well as buy some data and then we start to develop our brand strategies, product portfolios that are adapted for the market or created for the market right through to the visualisation of the brand and the product. That's the business we're in. We're not really believers in just trying to push product as it might exist on the Australian shelves into China. There is some level of adaptation that needs to take place. So there's kind of two camps of thought in that space. Either fill containers and send them or have a long-term China strategy and actually make the effort to understand the market. 
And that's what you do? Yeah. Okay. But of course, not all businesses succeed in China and uh, mistakes can be costly. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what are some of the biggest mistakes made by businesses that you see that are trying to get into China? Premature. So the category is not developed. We have one big consumer healthcare company, actually, we're dealing with a huge multi-billion dollar company. So we have started to go from food and beverage into a bit of healthcare, consumer wellness. Some of those categories were just too in their infancy when that client decided to come into China. I think they lost $300 million. Good Lord. Yeah, because they're in pain care, they're in digestive health, they're in allergy. And some of those categories, consumers didn't even know that they had an issue. They'd never know there was something such as, you know, an allergy perhaps, right? (laughs) Or that you could do something about joint health. So sometimes it is literally that, that the consumer hasn't sort of recognized, you know, the need and the client has come in way too early. Or perhaps they have come in with a big team and spent a lot of money on an operation and hired the wrong people. That happens a lot. Yes. That are not really a good fit for role. Right. Well, one of your areas of expertise, I understand, is spotting and avoiding so-called China experts. Mm. So where are they? And how can oh. you tell a shonky operator from a, a they're, bona fide one? They're everywhere. <laughs> I just found a few yesterday. I was at Global Table, speaking at Global Table in Melbourne, a huge big food and beverage conference. A lot of them are down here, folks that don't live in China or in New Zealand, people that claim to be China experts that maybe left in 2010 or go there once a year on some government trade mission. And they have a lot of advice to give. And I think there is a flushing out of that happening in the market now. I think we're starting to see, okay, the the firms that are serious or the advisory firms that are serious, they have real feet under the desk in China. There's something very compelling about that, obviously. We're now starting to see some of those agencies or firms start to set up businesses here in Australia or spend more time here. So there's a bit of flushing out of that. I think the Austrade, the Chambers of Commerce in both Melbourne as well as China are both good places to see who has been vetted. So we tend to spend a lot of time in those communities and making sure that we're rubbing shoulders with the right people. Okay, and another area of expertise for you, I understand, is dealing with risk-averse boards of these big companies that you're dealing with. How do you manage them? The way we would help facilitate a risk-averse board is to get them involved as early as possible. And that, I think, is quite unusual. You may not see that happen with businesses in Australia where they even get to meet the board. They would meet the senior management team, perhaps. With us, often what we see is companies that are really committed to China will bring the board to China for meetings. So they might fly up a dozen people. We will try and intersect our presentations with their visits and come in and present to them, even if it's giving them a little bit of a sort of stage-gated view of the project or what's happening. We might take them on market immersions. The big healthcare company I mentioned, actually some of the board members and the global executive team, we had about 20 of them coming in from all around the world and even took them into consumers' homes. So pretty hands-on. So we're seeing that the companies that are serious about China, they do get their hands actually relatively dirty with what's happening in China. Well, language alone won't make or break you in China, I would say. But do you need to have a Mandarin-speaking person on your team if you're serious about entering into the China market? Unless you're fluent yourself, yes. So, for example, I majored in Mandarin in the 90s and marketing. I went there in 2000 to start my career. I'm pretty fluent, I would say. In some situations, very fluent. In some situations, not at all. The language is highly complex. Our secretary, for example, doesn't really speak that much English. I tend to switch all the time to Chinese. It's just easier operationally. The company benefits from that in a big way. 
half of our team is Chinese, half of our team would be foreign. So I've even said to our foreign team, unless you are sitting your HSK Chinese studies every year, this may not be the place for you, to be honest, because you do have to have a high capacity of Mandarin to do business here. There is forgiveness, though, still in China. Obviously, most Chinese in the professional space will be probably more fluent in English than we are in Chinese. It's really good at language. But it is important. Cultural nuance is critical to understand, and language is a gateway for that. What's your best advice to business operators, perhaps not the really big corporate businesses, but the you know small to medium-sized business operators wanting to expand into China? Perhaps just pick a city or a small region to start with, you know, dip a toe in the water and be more steadfast at it and don't expect massive gains immediately. It's a long game. We're talking many, many years. Perhaps China may not be the right market in Asia first. If they haven't had an export strategy, sometimes I do advise clients to think of perhaps other more established markets, or a foray into Asia, a Singapore or a Hong Kong first, perhaps, might be sometimes easier. Okay. And a final question, Andrew, even if you are Mandarin speaking, you're a country boy from Victoria, mm-hmm. and now you talk all over the place with your expertise mm-hmm. about China, as well as running the Silk Initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, quite a journey from country Victoria. How come China became your destination? I think there's a series of factors. There was a lot of influence as a child with Chinese neighbours who were my godparents. They had immigrated to Ballarat in the 60s, as my parents did from Europe in the 50s. So we're constantly surrounded by folks from all over the world. And I think that kind of cultural influence at a young age made me a bit of a Sinophile. And then the University of Ballarat was one of the first universities in the country to actually merge a double degree between Asian studies and business. So it was very fortuitous that I was able to take Mandarin studies up with business. And then one, one thing led to another. So got this opportunity in the early 2000s to go to China. I think probably one of the youngest people at that time to go up there. And so it has just been this sort of Asia-Pacific tour of duty between China, Australia, the US, now back to China. And here I am. So it's um, I think it's one of those things where things just build on each other. And before you know it, you're in your mid-40s and you're, you're stuck in Shanghai. So. <laughs> Doesn't sound too bad being stuck in Shanghai. Right. Not bad. Could be worse. <laughs> Andrew Kula, The Silk Initiative. And that ends Business Essentials Podcast. So you don't miss out on future episodes, why not subscribe? And if you found this valuable, we'd love you to leave a review. For further information about us, or if you'd like to listen to more interviews like this one, visit businessessentials.com.au. We hope you've enjoyed Business Essentials Podcast. I'm Peter Letts. Thanks for listening. This Business Essentials Podcast has been produced by B Media Production, building engagement and adding value through quality audio communication. Music